Hello everyone and welcome to Flawless, our music podcast. My name is Liam and unfortunately I won't be joined today by my two co-hosts, George and Grant. Each episode, one of the hosts or a guest nominates an album that they think is flawless and we talk about why they love it and what they love about it and how they discovered it. We have a Facebook group, it's called Flawless Friends and Family and we'd love for you to join and become one of our friends and or family. You can tell us what you think about your favorite albums and of course all about your favorite episodes of the podcast as well. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash flawless friends and family. And we also have a Patreon, of course. You can back us from as little as $1 a month and no matter how much you back us for, you'll get access to all of our special bonus episodes. You can find us at patreon.com slash flawless AMP. We have a fantastic guest for this episode. Katie Noonan is a Brisbane music icon. She was one of the co-founders of George and has gone on to release a whole range of solo albums, including jazz, opera, and orchestral. We want to thank Katie for coming on and sharing her love of one of her favorite albums today. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook, and you can look for the links to those in our show notes. And now on with the episode. G'day, my name's Katie Noonan. I'm thrilled to be here on this podcast today. I'm coming to you from my lounge room with my doggy on Gubby Gubby Country on the Sunshine Coast in between Yamundi and Noosa. Um, I'm here to kind of let you guys know about my new um, Patreon campaign where I'm launching a monthly live stream concert from my home to your home, which is on the last Friday of every month. Um, and the first one's going to be rad. It's going to be songs that made me um, with a bunch of awesome Queensland women. And But other than that, I'm here to talk about the amazing seminal Portishead album called Dummy. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yay. I'm glad to be here. It's a nice, it's a beautiful kind of day for being home in your PJs and having yeah. cups of tea and talking about music. It's, it's <laughs> so, super yeah. windy here. I had to close everything up so it didn't interfere with what was going on. I don't know how, if it's windy where you are. It's pretty windy here too. We live, as I said, on Gubby Gubby country. So we're very lucky. We've got a few acres of beautiful trees and stuff and our house is kind of halfway down the hill so we're fairly wind protected here mm -hmm. but um i can see the leaves outside you know up the hill moving a bit so yeah it's kind of one of those nice cozy you know drizzly um beautiful days yeah yeah awesome so yeah dummy is the debut studio album for porter's head or from the uk and it was released on the 22nd of august of 1994 by go beat records it got yep. to number 23 in the Australian charts, uh, number 79 in the US Billboard, and number two in the UK charts. And it yeah. was beaten out by, I uh, didn't quite get to that number one spot, but it was beaten out by Picture This by Wet, 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 which is the one oh with lovers all around on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. That's so, uh, 90. Wow. Yeah, the UK people were feeling it with their fingers and in their toes. So, yeah, they were all over <laughs> Wet, Wet, Wet at the time. Um, oh, my God. So, I loved Wet, 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 got to say. I really did love that song. I don't know. It's probably it's a bit cheesy, but yeah, I loved it at the time because I was into the cheesy radio stuff. So yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't it the soundtrack to some big movie as well? At it the was time? Um, four weddings and a funeral. 
Oh, there we go. Yeah, I knew so it was one of those great British I, films. So yeah, that I looked up a bunch of stuff today about it just to, to, yeah, to talk well, about it. So yeah, I know more now about where we're than I ever wanted to. Oh dear, I don't know. So, if I'm yeah. Yay for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, did you? This album obviously would have come out in Australia around about that same time. Did you yeah. know of it right when it came out, or did it, did it take some while? Did it take you a while to get into it? I didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know of it right when it came out because August 94, I was in grade 12. So I was pretty focused on finishing my HSC. And most of my memories of this are more from like first year uni, second year uni, so 95, 96. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, this was when CDs were really a new, exciting kind of thing in the 90s. Well, that was still seemed new to me anyway. Um, And I remember going into Rocking Horse Records I'm pretty sure it was still um, in Adelaide Street then, which has basically been where I've gone to buy every single album that has influenced my life. Nice. Um, And I remember going in and buying it and taking it home and listening to it and just wearing the CD thin. Um, You know, it was such an exciting time for music making. It was around about the time that Björk was releasing her debut record and there was just this super exciting sound coming from the UK um that was you know mixing electronic music with acoustic music and just making this whole new world that really i you know arguably many say that dummy you know is basically the 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 zeitgeist of kind of trip hop um music and i don't know what was in the water in bristol but you know that's where you know um Massive Attack and Tricky and, um, you know, Nana Cherry and then Portishead and, you know, these these really interesting artists who I really loved um, and were a huge influence on me. And, yeah, so this record was basically the soundtrack to my first share house in in Baden, uh, the Jube, Jube, which was this kind of legendary artist's hangout house in Baden on Jubilee Terrace. And um, I have so many memories of listening to this record really loud mm-hmm. and just totally losing myself in it, you know? Yep. Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're obviously a musician yourself. How do you feel like maybe this record and, and the whole trip hop stuff that happened influenced some of the stuff that you've done over the years? Yeah, well, you know, this was one of the first records where I'd heard sampling done really well, you know? Mm-hmm. So the main producer, um, what's his name? Jeff Barrow. You know, he sampled these really cool Lado Schifrin riffs from, you know, mystery movies and from the 60s. It was the first time I kind of heard full orchestral music sampled in a way that was really different. Like, obviously, I'd heard orchestral music in, like, rock records, like Led Zeppelin and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I'd never heard it in this kind of new electronic E kind of crossover world. Yeah. and it just created such a mood, like, you know, when you sample stuff that's made, that's old and real and made by real musicians in a room, you know, it's got such a vibe. Mm. And I've always been very much a someone that makes music live and records live, completely live. Um, whereas this was a different thing because they were sampling stuff and, but it still felt so real because what they were sampling was so organic and big and lush and... Mm. I think for a lot of classical pl- people who love classical music, which is definitely me, like my first hero was kind of Vivaldi, you know, nice. I was the daggy kid listening yeah. to Bach Vivaldi when I was a kid. 
hearing that big lush orchestral sound on tunes like Roads and Glory Box, you know, it was like, wow, classical music can be fucking cool, you mm. know, like it can be in this new world. Um, yeah, so it was a really exciting exciting time of just a brand new thing and i yeah. really love Beth's um voice yes um, because it wasn't i'm not interested in voices that are perfect i'm really mm. interested in voices that are real and she's she felt really honest to me yeah. like yeah i just i believed that she believed what she was singing and mm. I that. yeah yeah it's interesting um, like they, the album wasn't recorded digitally. So you listen to it and you think of the way all the elements that come together and you think about it in a modern context. And it's like, oh yeah, I, you know, there are bedroom studios now that you could use to bring all those elements together and do that sort of thing. But then I found out in the research that it was like no aspect of it was recorded digitally. So even when they sampled music from other records, they sent, so they sampled music from other records, but when they wanted to do, we're going to record like a drum playing and then we want to fiddle with it rather than recording it and then fiddling with it digitally, they recorded yeah. it, blasted it onto a vinyl record and then used scratching and stuff to production tricks to recreate yeah. what they wanted to do, which is just, yeah. So they, in order to so, create a vintage sound, they distressed yeah. like they even, they would put the records on the ground. If they wanted to make it sound like a smash sound, they would put them on the floor and walk across them to wow. like really smash the records and yeah, push the sound through like a broken amplifier or something like that. Like they just didn't want to yeah, and I'm not sure the technology would have even been there, but the kind of stuff they you could do so easily now, they didn't want to do it yeah. artificially and they just wanted everything to be really real. That makes a lot of sense. And then with the stuff that they did record that was new, did they do it to tape, like non-digital? Yeah, well? I think they yeah. did, yeah. So they recorded all their own original <laughs> music into vinyl records and then manipulated it in through the decks if they wanted to do samples and stuff. Wow. So just yeah, no well, back then, Yeah, well, back then, you know, um, Obviously, Pro Tools and digital stuff was around, like Cubase mm. and all those things were starting. But it was still very much analog meets digital kind of world. Um, I mean, I know the first, definitely the first George record, which we made about five years later, you know, all the band tracks were done to two-inch tape. Mm. And you just can't replicate that sound digitally. Um, it's just not possible even though digital has gotten a lot better since then obviously this is 25 years ago which makes me feel very bloody old <laughs> but um you know digital nowadays it really is pretty hard to tell the difference but back then you really could hear the difference digital just sounded kind of plastic it didn't sound and even cds you know even though it was great audio nothing beats vinyl you know um for many reasons the sonic quality but also the experiential bit of it because you mm -hmm. have to get up and turn it over halfway yeah. through which, um so you're more involved it's actually active listening i think because you know you have to listen because you have to listen for when the needle mm. gets to the bit where it skips and you got to turn it over and um yeah so that makes a lot of sense and then i remember seeing them live um oh, at cool. festival hall in i presume it was 96 ish i don't really know i haven't looked into it but you know that year, I saw so many amazing bands at Festival Hall that completely mm. blew my mind. So I saw Björk, I saw Jeff Buckley, uh, 97, I saw Radiohead on the OK Computer Tour. Nice. Like the very beginning of that tour. So the, the late 90s were just unbelievable for, mm. it was a magic time. I mean, 
yeah, it feels like it was a particularly magic time for new sounds, post-grunge, kind of pre-plastic fantastic pop of the early kind of, you know, mm. noughties, which was a bit more um, uber pop. There was just this beautiful little patch where really interesting music was being made. Songs like Paranoid Android, which is seven and a half minutes long, mm. you know, were going to the top of the charts and, yeah, it was, and songs like this album, you know, which has three of my favourite songs. I mean, my three favourites on the album would be um, Wandering Star, Roads, and, of course, Glory Box, yeah. um, the closing track of the album. And, you know, they were just such cool tunes. Not, I'd heard, never heard anything like it. And, honestly, there's been a lot of people trying to emulate this kind of vibe since then, but this was a kind of special record that could never be made again. It was made then and that's it kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting time. That, like you said, it was sort of, it was 94. Grunge was either done or on its way out. You had sort of Nine Inch Nails and Green Day and some of the more sort of turgid stuff coming in through the US. But even in yeah. Britain, you had like, oh, this was Oasis versus Blur. This was almost peak that time or it was just about to be. So what possessed them to go, well, we're not going to, you know, we're almost going to throw guitars out the window and just focus on the, the sort of these drums and these sweeping arrangements and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Is just, yeah. And the idea that it's a debut album, like we, we do quite a few debut albums and it always blows me away how confident some of the people are to just go, no, I'm just doing this thing that doesn't sound like anything else and I don't care and it just blows up and becomes super, you know, really well done. Well, I think it's because there isn't any pressure. Mm -hmm. When you're making your debut album, you're just doing exactly what you want to do on your terms. No one really has an opinion on it because you're nobody kind mm -hmm. of thing. So you just do your own thing. And then, of course, that's why everyone has the difficult second record because suddenly there's all this pressure, people suddenly have, everyone has got an opinion on your thing. Um, whereas the reason that you have success is because you just listened to your own voice and did your own thing, regardless of the trends, um, and made your own sound, which is why albums like, you know, Grace and um, this album and just crazy debut albums are just so bloody magnificent, you know, yeah. And it also won the 1995 Mercury Music Prize as well. So it sort of really was that one of those leading albums. It, didn't, it wasn't the first sort of trip-hop stuff because the Massive Attack had come out the year before in 1993. Yeah. And that was actually leading on. The, some of the members of Massive Attack were from a trip-hop band earlier in the late 80s as well. But it certainly, yeah. I think, would have blown it up and made it really popular on like a worldwide scale. Yeah. And the UK, God, they punch above their weight. Like it's such a small country. Mm. But... Like Australia, I mean, we're obviously massive, but we don't have a massive population, even though they're smaller, they would have more people, I'm sure. Yeah. I haven't looked at the but yeah, I, yeah. Assume I think there's more people um, in London than there is in Australia. So, yeah, definitely all good on that front. Really? I think so. Is that real? Oh, my God. Wow. So there you go. But it's a tiny, you know, mm. country. And the amount of extraordinary musicians that have come from there is kind of bonkers and particularly the late 90s for me, yeah, you know, um, Radiohead, um, Björk, even though she's Icelandic, you know, she was making all her records in London, um, Massive Attack, uh, Portishead, Everything But The Girl, you know, mm. there was just such great, interesting music coming out from there. And then, of course, you know, Oasis and The Verve and blah, 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 all the great, you know, it's it's a bit like Australia and I think we do punch way above our weight like we make really interesting records um that based on our population is pretty extraordinary you mm. know 
totally yeah cool so let's um hit some of those favorite songs that you were talking about um mm. wandering star is obviously an awesome song it's just got that um like that throbbing that pulsing urge all the way through it and then yeah. it whips out that little guitar melody as well and it's mixed into the dj scratching Yeah, it's, I really it's love the way it does that. Yeah, mm. like a solo made from a scratching. Yeah, it's just like I'd never heard that before, you know. And mm. I'd never heard a theremin, I don't think, until this record. Right. Um, and just that massive, enormous, incredibly chunky, fat, big whirly or roads or whatever it is, just that just mm -hmm. is relentlessly pulsing, as you say, through the tune. Um, and the lyrics don't really make sense and it doesn't matter. Like they're not, <laughs> there's, no, there's no real kind of clear narrative. Um, like her lyrics are really cool and adult and kind of mm -hmm. elusive. You don't quite know what she's saying, but who cares? Yeah. It's amazing. And um, yeah. And the drum sounds on this record are just so good. Like so, so, so good. Um, and when I saw them live, it was, it was great. She is not a very, um, she's a very shy person. And yeah. so her performative style is pretty um, uninteresting, to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. she just doesn't talk and doesn't look and it's, she's not a performer, like really. Yeah. Yeah. But you just kind of shut your eyes and just heard it through a massive PA. I remember a lot of people were actually lying on the floor. Um, mm. <laughs> in the gig okay. That's what you do to this music. It's not like you're in a mosh pit kind of, you know, um, jumping all over each other. It's, no, it's, that's right. Uh, it's Yeah. Yeah, because I had a bit of a look around. Yeah, I thought I was wondering what kind of style it would be when they played it live. Would it like just be like a DJ and maybe one or two other musicians? But all the videos I found, they had like a full suite, like eight or nine people up on stage. I don't know if it was the same yeah. when you saw them, just yeah, playing yeah. all the individual parts live, which is obviously... 100%. You, you, yeah. yeah, you want that, but, you, you know, you, a lot of bands don't necessarily do it that way, but it was really great to see that, yeah, they were just like, no, we're going to recreate as much of these things live as we can, even with the DJ and the production stuff. Yeah, and it sounded unbelievably good. Like, basically, I think their intention was always to make sonically amazing stuff. And mm -hmm. I remember, actually, there's this legendary Brisbane engineer called Joe Malone who builds valve um, compressors, basically, and... I remember he said, oh, the Portishead tour manager rang me and I had to loan them like eight, hire them, you know, eight valve compressors or something. Nice. Like, <laughs> that's more than any bloody studio in Australia has, but they wanted yeah. eight, so I gave them eight. And yeah. I remember seeing the stacks of gear mm. um, on the stage just going, there is so much gear on this stage. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> they obviously want this to sound fucking amazing and it did but then beth was just singing into a bloody sure 58 you know like basically the the working man's working woman's mic you know that costs mm. like 200 bucks so they kept her voice super i mean they processed it and it went through a lot of things but um yeah it sounded amazing it was really inspiring to see a band that weren't really a band you know they were, yeah. they were produced by Jeff Barrows and then there was the guitarist Adrian and then Beth and so it was kind of three of them but none of them the only real I think actual musician was like Adrian he did gigs and stuff the guitarist mm. 
Whereas yeah. Beth and um, Jeff, I think, were just kind of, you know, um, bedroom kind of musos. Yeah. yeah. And then suddenly catapulted to the national stage, uh, international stage, which I think um, I remember thinking, these guys, you know, they're not performers, <laughs> like they're not natural performers, but had this massive amazing record blow up so obviously they're touring it but i got the impression that they didn't really enjoy touring <laughs> kind sure, of yeah. um you know like they loved making the music but you know yeah it was it, it it wasn't it's music that you shut your eyes to and get lost in so yeah 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 most of the videos i found if they were playing they're either playing at big festivals so everybody's obviously standing but a lot yeah. of the other ones they were playing in rooms where everybody was seated which yeah. is, now that I'm the age I am, is my ideal gig. I love seated oh gigs, God. so I'm like, that would be so good. Well, I remember I was just in the main because I didn't get, you know, fe- uh, did you ever go to Festival Hall? Yeah, yep. Couple yeah, of times. so you know how there was the floor and then the seats around kind of thing. I yep. missed out yep. on the seats bit, so I was in the kind of floor, like essentially what would normally be the mosh pit, I guess. But mm-hmm. most of us were sitting and lying down and stuff. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was still packed, like it was sold out, but everyone was just kind of super chilled. Yeah, mm. it was beautiful. And I think um, just leaning into what you also said is I don't think Beth likes to give interviews either because I was looking around at some of their interviews and stuff and it's mostly the two guys and yeah. even to the point where one of the interviews talked about how she doesn't like to talk about it. So it's like, oh, yeah. any chance we could talk to Beth? It's like, no, that's not going to happen. Just talk to the two guys. She seems very elusive and just wants to do her thing and yeah i guess yeah. the music for her talks to her so it talks to it yeah and her lyrics as i said they don't really some of them don't make much sense they're very kind of poetic and they're not very there's not like it's a narrative that you can follow clearly but she just creates these amazing moods and then the samples that jeff made and the sounds that they made just created such a incredibly cinematic moody kind of world um yeah that her voice just perfectly fit into and yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my favorite songs in the album was It Could Be Sweet, which yeah. e- even among like, it's a pretty laid back album is like a very laid back song. Yeah. Um, but I found out that that was actually how the band met because Barrow and Gibbons and Gibbons were working together at a studio. And so they'd sort of met and they were starting to do some stuff. And then Utley had was this guy's session guy and he was working in another room and he heard them playing It Could Be Sweet and he was like, what the hell is that? And it was just this the sub bass and her voice and he was so excited by it that he raced over to meet them and then it was this whole thing that went from there. Ah, that's awesome. I love those stories. Yeah, I mean, life is just a series of happy accidents. You know, um, I think no one kind of starts out going, I'm going to start a band and it's going to be X, you know, like if you do, that's a pretty calculated, not very (laughs) thing. Um, Every band that I have been in and every band I've known have just been accidentally started by things like that, you know, randomly meeting someone at a party and jamming on a thing and then it becomes a thing and then you kind of just ride the wave um, together with other people. Um, Yeah. Because often people say to me, they all they kind of say, oh, you've had such a busy career, you must be very ambitious. And I'm like, no, I'm not the kind of person who, you know, started out going, I'm going to do X by the time I'm 30, you know. Mm-hmm. I just had none of that. All I wanted to do was just try to make sounds that sounded unique. And that was definitely inspired by albums like this because you'd put it on and go, what the fuck is that? I've never heard anything like that in my life. This is amazing. And, you know, 
all uh, I remember hearing Lamb around the same time too. Another great, you know, crossovery electronic meets blah blah. And I was like, she's amazing. What she sounds like this weird kind of elfin, I don't know, alien and <laughs> you know, every, yeah. Just I'm um, I love people that sound unique, and I think unfortunately, more and more. Music is just sounding so homogenized and so tuned and so fixed nowadays. Um, like there are bits on this record where if you were a modern producer, you know, there are bits where Beth doesn't sing really in tune, you know, like that's just, and it's like, God, it's good to hear that because now I've never used auto tune in my, I don't do auto tune, but sadly most singers do. And, a lot of people use it live too, which scares the shit out of me. But, you know, <laughs> it's nice just hearing real music that is not, manip- I mean, it's it has been manipulated, as you were saying, you know, like sending the sample through to vinyl and then playing it as a scratch solo and stuff like that. But it's just in a different, you know, it's it's been done in a, in a human way rather than a machine way. Yeah. Because they do that on Strangers. So the first half of Strangers, her vocals and um, I think even the guitar and the drum parts as well are fed. Like you can feel the fuzz. Like so they've obviously done yeah. that trick where they've recorded them, done something to the vinyl and then used the vinyl as a sample. And yeah. so it marks a real difference between the first and second half of the song is like the first half is like quite crunchy, but also quite restrained and restricted. And then it sort of breaks out into the second half and it gives it that diff- really different feel. drum oh man the drums just sound so good i mean tape is the ultimate way to make i mean drums just i love vocal tape distortion too like Mm -hmm. when you just go in a little bit too hot to the tape and it's like well that's it that's the take you know that beautiful distortion that like aretha and otis redding and like stevie wonder and all those dudes you know they're all in the room going to two track (laughs) kind of thing the chance for distortion is so high but even nowadays like for, for example, with my record um, skin, um, that was done totally to tape and there's quite a bit of tape distortion on there. And I love it because it's like, that's human, you know, it's it's like, it's great. It's not perfect. Yeah. That's awesome, you know. Yeah, so yeah. George, who's uh, one of our co-hosts, couldn't make it today, but she um, she was going to nominate this album too. And one of the things she often talks about is, yeah, the imperfections. And you can, yeah. like if, if there's an imperfection on an album, you know it was supposed to be there because if they didn't want it there, they could have fixed it. But if so, if it's yeah. there, it's supposed to be there, and it's a, it's a, I guess a statement of humanity to say that you know something didn't quite go exactly the way it was supposed to, but we love it so much we don't care. Well, that's the thing. A record is a snapshot of time on Earth, and no moment on Earth is perfect. Very few. Maybe the birth of your child, or you know, making love with your lover, and there's this perfect moment together. But generally, you know, life is not perfect. If yeah. any, you know, particularly this year has taught us that more than anything. Um, so I've never understood this obsession with making music sound perfect because 
life isn't perfect and music is human and humans are not perfect. So, mm. yeah, I think we've really lost the, I think a lot of people have lost the battle with just going down the rabbit warren of editing shit and tuning shit and just making it sound so unreal that first of all, they can't recreate it live because they've relied on digital manipulation to make them sound better than they actually are. <laughs> um, you know, but it's just like, I don't want to hear that music. I just don't want to hear it. I want to hear I'd much prefer to listen to, you know, oh, I mean, any one of the artists that make records before auto tune, but yeah, it's lovely hearing these um, uh, albums that where people did have the technology, but they chose to not use it. Um, so I'm pretty sure auto tune was around then. I'm sure it, it was probably a very different, I mean, nowadays it seems to be, I don't know, but it's a very simple plugin that you just put on and it just tunes shit but um it would have been around then and as you say they haven't fixed it which is great because mm. her voice is not perfect it's kind of quite unusual and she doesn't sing perfectly in tune it's like that's fucking great <laughs> you know yeah and Björk I mean imagine trying to tune Björk yeah. how could you tune that tone or Tom Waits or like yeah Jeff Buckley with his really massive vibrato you know that he wouldn't sound like that if he was tuned. It, it mm. couldn't. And yeah. So speaking of really fucking great, we should talk about Glory Box. Yeah. It's just like amazing. Like I didn't realize I knew I hadn't heard the album in full before. I had no idea this was oh. the last song. So yeah. I knew I knew who Portal's Head were, and I'd heard a bunch of singles, and obviously Glory Box included in that. But I hadn't heard the album in full. But just the once again that that guts to take what is obviously going to be a huge single and a, the thing that makes you famous and then put it last on the album is just amazing i wonder if they knew though i wonder if they knew that it was going to be yeah because i assumed it was the first single but it was actually the third single released off the album so they released numb yeah. and then sour times first and then yeah. glory box was after that so i would have released wandering star and roads as singles if i was mm. a person <laughs> i would have yeah. I wouldn't have picked sour. I wouldn't have picked those other ones, actually. Yeah. Sour times, I think I get because it's got that Mission Impossible that twang on it, so it almost like it gives it a little bit of a hook that some of the other songs don't necessarily have. It does. It's got that real sound. Yeah, like a spy movie kind of. Yeah. Album. So they they took Lalo Schifrin's Danube incident, which is from a like a Mission Impossible throw off thing that he did, and then yeah. sped it up and then sped it up. little hip-hop sound which is really cool but yeah um but yeah it's a glory box it's got that huge orchestral sweep and the crunchy guitars it's so good to yeah. like the oh, guitars man. are so muted throughout the rest of the album they really hear them there's and like a big wailing guitar solo on this one and yeah. it's like it, but still funneled through like that porter's head kind of sound yeah yeah totally yeah well look i mean this has that aching lyric you know give me a reason to love give me a reason to love you yeah it's just such a great lyric. Everyone can relate to that lyric, male, female, you know, all of the above. It's just such a killer lyric that people could connect with and it just captured this kind of longing somehow and she sounds kind of desperate, you know, um, in the 
tune and it's got that you know amazing descending bass line which is hooky as anything and yeah and then it, as you say it's the and then you have that beautiful solo which is kind of the first time on the record where the guitar really does open up and then those incredible huge orchestral strings i guess Rhodes and glory box have the most orchestral kind of vibes um yeah and for me it was really inspiring hearing classical kind of stuff in a pop setting you know certainly massive influence on george and we had you know string sections and french horns and all sorts of things on our i mean you know the beatles were doing it with sergeant peppers and you know abbey road and whatever but hearing it in this new kind of uh well the end of the 20th century this new kind of uh you know digital meets analog world of this trip thing um yeah it's such a killer tune i mean it's yeah. just amazing yeah and she has a little dig at toxic masculinity along the way as well so there's a lyric in there Like, yeah, it's 25 years old, which like obviously toxic masculinity gets talked about a lot more now than it did then. But even back then, they were, she, that was something that she'd identified and noticed that was important to talk about. Yeah, I really don't like the term toxic masculinity. Okay. Like I, I, I understand that it has to have a title, but mm-hmm. I think it's actually quite a damaging... Um, oh, like I get it, of course. We've had these men being told their whole lives, you know, take it like a man, don't be a poof, fucking harden up, you know, etc. And then we've kind of gone, you know, and so obviously that's not working for either gender, particularly not our beautiful men who need to be able to express themselves and, and, you know, cry and, and be emotional, which is more generally associated with women. Um, but yeah, I do have a pro I mean, there have been some amazingly toxic men and unfortunately because of the paradigm that we're living in where, you know, it was illegal for women to have a job and be married until the late sixties in Australia. So, you know, my mum couldn't do a job and be married. That was actually illegal. So, you know, how bonkers is that? And that was only 50 years ago. And then it was illegal to be pregnant and have a job. And then it, there was no maternity leave and there was no paternity leave and so there were all these constructs in place to basically prop up the um the uh the dream that the man was the breadwinner the woman was the caregiver she stayed home the guy did the money they made kids happy days you know which for a lot of families was a really beautiful model you know and i've got friends who are full-time mums and have a very busy very fulfilled life but um, when you just put this broad brushstroke on a whole gender because of some men that have been toxic and obviously they're more in positions of power because from a legal point of view, women couldn't be in those positions of power. Um, you know, so therefore we've got less CEOs, we've got less chairs, we've got less executives that are female. 
but gee, there's plenty of toxic females as well. I've met a lot of them. So I've, I've, it's wor- I just don't like that broad brushstroke because it puts a whole brushstroke on an entire, on 50% of the population, which is not fair. You know, like I've got two boys who I'm bringing up and they're constantly told they're toxic because they have a dick. It's like, oh, you're not. Like, you know, you're just, you're, we're coming up with a new version of what a modern man is and you're a beautiful example of it, you know. And obviously they've grown up in a house where their father is the primary carer at home. So it's the opposite of what my mum grew up with. Um, but yeah, I just, I do just worry about that term because I, I think it's a bloody tough time to be a man <laughs> because you are told that you're toxic basically, unless you prove otherwise, which is pretty, that's a horrible, that's a really horrible um, thing to put on lovely people. Like my husband's not, you know, my kids aren't, my dad's not. Um, and, but I know, you know, obviously <laughs> a lot of them are, but I don't think they're toxic because they're male. I think they're toxic because they're toxic. I actually don't think it's a gender based. Um, it's it, it, making it as simple as gender is kind of naive, really. I think it's um, just they're toxic and they've been in positions of power. And anyway, sorry, I went that's off on good. a tangent. No, then. that's all cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I was going to ask: um, Have you heard the Powderfinger version of Glory Box? Oh, I have not. No. Because okay. there was um, a few years back like about 15 years ago, there was an album of uh, all women performing male vocal songs. Uh-huh. And then about a year after that, they switched it and had men perform women's vocal songs and Power of the Glory Box. Nice. Um, I, like when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's not going to, didn't, I didn't have a lot of hope, but yeah, um, yeah. It's, really, it's really good. Like, awesome. And, yeah, so I definitely recommend you and everyone else check it out because it's, yeah, if you're sort of feeling a bit not sure about it, don't worry. It's, yeah, it's all good. I love hearing boys, men sing women's songs and I love hearing women sing men's yeah, songs. Yeah, both um, the albums are really good. I definitely recommend their. I think they're, they're called um, like She Will Have Her Way and He Will Have His Way because it was originally. Oh, I remember them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But wasn't She Will Have Her Way, wasn't that all crowded house tunes? Or am I thinking of something else? Let me just I think bring it, it might up have been called something else. Uh, no Man's it. Woman, sorry, is what oh, it's right. called. I yeah. Got, yeah, no, I got that wrong. Yeah, No Man's Woman yeah. is a bunch is an album of men covering women's vocal songs and yeah. Nice. I'm Very cool. Um, mm. Well, I love Bernard's voice and actually around this time, I'm just trying to remember when Internationalist came out, but. That was 97. I mean, that's so a, a bit after this one. Amazing record. Another record that hugely influenced me. And in fact, that was the first album they made with Nick Dedea. And I was such a fan of how Nick transformed their sound for that album that I worked with him myself on um, my first kind of band album after George with my band, The Captains. I co-produced that with Nick Dedea. So um, that was because of Internationalist, basically, what he did, where he took the band, you know, like that that, that was just such a step up from their previous records. Um, yeah. So, yeah, cool. I'll check it out. I love Bernard's voice. So, mm. yeah. So we're nearly out of time here. So what we normally do at the end is maybe like a little bit of a final pitch from you about why you think the album's flawless and why you think if someone hadn't heard it before, they should check it out. Yeah, cool. Well, why do I think Portishead's record Dummy is flawless? I think it's flawless because it's beautifully flawed because it is actually a very human record 
one of the first records that really brought the digital and the analog world together in a truly interesting way where rather than the machines being the masters of the musicians the musicians were the masters of the machine and so of the machines so they you know sampled all these cool old records and did all that stuff that's possible now with digital world but then kept it super analog and super real and also one of the first times i heard the classical world being put into a kind of pop you know context in a really different way um and yeah if you haven't heard it i highly recommend it um i would recommend turning it up very 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 loud and just having a little solo dance party in your lounge room with a glass of wine or headphones and shut your eyes and disappear for 50 minutes and your life will be immeasurably better yeah nice very much a headphones record for me but the band also recommend you play it live that's what i read in a couple of their interviews as well it's like they they love that big sound and they just want people to be knocked out by it i used to smash it so loud in my house (laughs) like i remember many parties doing that just making it crazy loud yeah all right well thank you very much katie for joining us today uh where where can people find you online Ah, well, you know, all the normal things, katienoonan.com.au actually at the moment because my .com has gone down, but that'll come back. Um, you know, uh, Katie Noonan Music on Instagram, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. But the main thing that I'm launching at the moment is my new um, monthly live streaming concert called Live from Zacharin's Rainbow Room. And that starts on Friday, the 25th of September. Last Friday of every month, I'm going to be curating a really special concert series from our home to your home and the first episode is songs that made me um sunshine coast star so it's myself sahara beck um international cellist uh, louise king um andrew Kerwin, who's a beautiful fijian australian sunshine coast soul singer soul kind of r&b um sarah king who's a lovely chamber folk artist and a beautiful young 11-year-old First Nations lady called Layla Barnett, who I've been mentoring in my Umundi School of Rock, my free music school I run up here. So it'll be six women sharing the songs that made us, songs that we've written and then songs that we wish we'd written. <laughs> and in fact, Sarah is doing Roads from this record as a song that made her randomly. Um, I'll be doing a Jeff Buckley tune. Um, Sahara's doing an Amy Winehouse tune. So we kind of pay tribute to people that changed our lives and then we play our own tunes. And we do a few group songs. We're going to do a Dolly Parton group song, which I'm very excited about. Because Dolly is the queen. Um, Have you checked out her podcast? I haven't. I must admit, when I have, I'm not a massive podcaster to be honest, Fair which I, you shouldn't be saying to someone who is a podcaster, <laughs> but I've not really, um, anytime I do have, I tend to listen to music, to be honest. Yeah, so that's yeah, enough. but I, it's something I want to get into more because I've had so many people send me great podcasts that have kind mm. of inspired them. So I'm going to get into it more. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you next time. Yay. Thanks, Liam. So, ta